Welcome to another episode of the Conduct Detrimental Podcast. My name is Zachary Bryson. I am an editor for the podcast as well as a guest on this week's episode. And before we get started today, just wanted to remind everyone that today's episode, like all of our episodes, is sponsored by Themis Bar Review, best bar review company in the country. I am a current 2L in law school in North Carolina and am starting to think about studying for the bar in the coming months. So I will definitely be using Themis whenever that does happen. If you are going to be studying for the bar anytime soon, go check out our link at themis.com slash con detrimental. It's truly great. And now for the episode. Welcome, everybody, to Conduct Detrimental. After a multiple week absence, I'm back. This is Daniel Wallach to break the streak of Danless podcasts on Conduct Detrimental. But my co-host this week is not going to be Dan Lost. We actually have a sort of a dream team, you know, sort of the big three. Get this, Zachary Bryson, second year law student at Elon University. My God, Elon Musk has taken over academia as well. My God, what is going on? And then we're joined by a guest co-host. People, if you're in the Northeast or you follow the gambling industry, everybody should know the name John Brennan, longtime writer and reporter for the Bergen Record. He had his famous Meadowlands Matters podcast. He's covered the gambling industry in the Northeast, New Jersey, New York, and on a national basis for years. Also was a beat writer covering the New Jersey Nets, New York Knicks, New York Rangers. Welcome, guys, to the, it's not a rebranded Conduct Detrimental, but it's sort of a, a unique episode of Conduct Detrimental. And I think going forward, all three of us will be on the podcast, either together, separately, or two out of the three of us. So guys, welcome. I'm glad to be an honorary Dan for a moment. It's kind of yeah, exciting. Yeah, you don't seem too excited. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fired up. <laughs> John Brennan and I go back to the days of the New Jersey sports betting litigation before I became a podcaster or sports law analyst, gaming lawyer. My first, I guess, public appearance in any respect on, on, on social media was covering the New Jersey sports betting case. And John had the illustrious honor of giving me my first quote or you know, reference in a newspaper during this sort of you know reinvention of Daniel Wallach circa 2013. So John and I go back to the beginning of the New Jersey sports betting controversy. So John, let's begin with a subject that's near and dear to your heart. Hot off the presses today, the New York Liberty are on the verge, or I think they're about to announce the signing of Brianna Stewart, probably the most famous free agent in the history of the WNBA. And now the Liberty are poised to put together their, their own super team. How unfortunate can James Dolan be? He's been a, a, an owner of the Knicks and the Rangers and MSG since 1997. He's presided over 50 seasons of NHL and NBA regular seasons, and he doesn't have one championship to show for his efforts. Yet three or four years after selling the New York Liberty, he's going to be the Dom Mattingly of sports team owners and give way to a championship that's going to be you know, enjoyed by somebody else, not Tino Martinez, but in this instance, Joe Sy. So what do you think about this big news and how it impacts women's professional basketball? Well, it's a huge impact on women's professional basketball. I think it can put them on the map much more. You notice Kevin Durant is really interested in this. He's bringing in a whole new audience. There's, uh, you know, on the kind of professional golf side, Max Homa is a rising star who just won a tournament on the PGA Tour last week. And he was mentioning a friend of his on the LPGA Tour. And there's a lot of talk about kind of putting them together. So there's an effort, I think, 
in this generation now of male athletes to sort of try and bring people in to say, hey, follow the women's side too. It's great. And I think that they're so influential. That's a big deal. But as far as Dolan goes, I, I can't honestly say that's a coincidence that, gee, what bad luck that the team is great after he owned it. You know, I'm going back 30 years. I was covering the New York Rangers when Mark Messier was there. And I wound up getting switched off to the Knicks and the NBA in 1993. In 93, 94, the Knicks and Rangers are making the same run for a championship that the Rangers hadn't had in 54 years. The Knicks hadn't had in, I guess, 21 years. And all of a sudden, they're both going at it on parallel tracks. And so, you know, midway through the playoffs, people were asking me, do you wish you'd, you'd stayed with the Rangers? Did you want to switch to the Knicks? Are you better off? And I said, I, I don't care if either team wins, but if one of the team wins, I want to be the one covering it. And I wound up with the Knicks um, in Houston in game seven, late June, and they lose. And I've worked 44 days in a row and most of it on the road and they didn't get there and the Rangers did. So yeah. let me stop you right there because yeah. that is a, a moment that has tortured me for nearly 30 years. John Starks taking that contested three-pointer with Hakeem Olajuwon in his face when he had Patrick Ewing open under the basket, I think, and Rolando Blackman is in warm-ups on the bench. Is there a scenario in which Patrick Ewing takes the Knicks to the title if John Starks passes the ball off and sees him underneath? I mean, this is this is torture. It's been 50 today. This year will be the 50th year anniversary of the last New York Knicks championship team. Yeah. I was 10 years well, old. We're talking about yeah. Jerry Lucas. Phil Jackson, I remember, I remember it too. <laughs> well, my bosses had a different kind of agita because, you know, back then the, the theme was you would get a role player on a team that could win a championship and you would have a daily diary ghost written by a writer. And we happened to choose... Orlando Blackman, who basically didn't play the entire series. So uh, there wasn't a lot for him to say. So we got tortured on that front. It's hard to remember now because the Rangers did win in 94. So in that era, until they did, the New Jersey Devils games, when they would, they would the only time they would sell out in New Jersey was when the Rangers came. They had so many Ranger fans there. And the announced attendance was always 19,040. So on, on the audio, you could hear the announced crowd is 1940 which was the last time the Rangers had won the Stanley Cup. So they had their own tournament, but that's gone, although it's going on 30 years now almost since they won. But but as far as Dolan goes, so yeah, he comes in in the mid-90s, the late 90s, and I was covering the Knicks quite a bit then. And I remember the first day, and Frank Isola was there, who known to ESPN watchers, covering the Knicks even then. And Dolan shows up at a, after a practice, I think it was, and we go over to try and talk to him. And he says, what do you want to talk to me for? I'm just the owner. I don't know anything about basketball. And, you know, perhaps truer words were never spoken because uh, it didn't work out so well for them. So, you know, it's been it's been a tortured process for them. Obviously, the Knicks got very close for many years. And then Dolan has been more of a meddler with the Knicks. And that's been, you know, to that detriment. And so I, I wouldn't say that it's bad luck on Dolan's part that the Liberty may be a super team now that he doesn't own them anymore. I'm not sure that would have happened if he still did. Well, you know, he's had a very interesting policy when it comes to the media. I mean, I remember the day during the 1990s before Dolan assumed ownership of the team, there was basically unfettered media access. It was an un it was a very yes. media friendly organization on the Rangers side, on the Knicks side. And then Dolan comes over and like paranoia begins to be sort of the mood in, in the arena. The MSG network becomes essentially the sports equivalent of Pravda. And they start having PR guys like, you know, just following reporters who are interviewing players it's become a very media unfriendly atmosphere and now it's become a lawyer 
unfriendly atmosphere, which leads us into the topic du jour, which James Dolan had cover for so many years because Dan Snyder was out there. Dan Snyder was unqualifiedly, unconditionally the worst, most unpopular owner in all of major U.S. professional team sports. But now, now he's going to sell the team, presumably. And that will leave sort of James Dolan as the undisputed, most hated owner in professional sports. And that's not simply because his teams haven't won championships. It's the manner in which he's sort of reigned over the franchise, excommunicated people like Charles Oakley, had basically a, a contentious, hostile relationship with media members, with fans. And now, of all things, he's made this new policy ferreting out lawyers who've had the temerity to sue Madison Square Garden. Now they're using high-tech facial recognition technology to identify associates and partners who may have nothing to do with the case and banning them from the building simply because that law firm is suing the Madison Square Garden for either personal injury or it could be some shareholder dispute. He's enacted a legal industry-wide ban for any law firm that has sued the Garden. And if you look up the docket on the New York State Supreme Court website, the Garden is a defendant in over 400 cases. Not all 400 are pending, but they're a frequent litigant, as are almost any major professional sports venue for your flip and fall, your personal injury cases, disputes over a wide spectrum of items. And I've never heard of a venue banning lawyers from the building simply because there's pending litigation. Yeah, I think the, the, the strangest thing about the Dolan part is he did a WFAN, New York Sports Radio, interview recently. And one of the questions he happened to be asked was, does he consider owning the Knicks and the Rangers and the Madison Square Garden kind of a public trust or a private company? And he went on the private side. And that's a little bit of a landmine because he's exempt from all sorts of taxes as sort of a special privilege to the garden and to the teams. And yet he's deciding, well, this is my own private little enterprise, which is fine, but it kind of can't have both. If you're totally private, you better pay taxes like everyone else. And if you're a public trust, then okay, maybe you get some tax breaks, maybe, but then you can't be doing the sort of things he's doing now. It is very strange, particularly because it's a little bit petty to ban any attorney who has any involvement with any lawsuit with them. But it's not even that. You know, there was a woman from New Jersey who was there with like it was a Girl Scout troop of all things for a PR nightmare. And she works for a firm that has probably dozens, if not hundreds of lawyers. And she's banned. She doesn't even know what the case is about, you know, and doesn't care. It's probably not even her anywhere near her field of expertise. So you're talking about a wide swath of people. And I, I think it's, again, you mentioned the the hostile nature of Dolan with the media. And it's, it's, it's the worst case scenario to do to New York media. In other markets, it's going to work. And it does work. It works today. And maybe most markets in New York, you know, forget about it, as we say in New York and New Jersey. Listen, and banning the lawyer isn't really going to prevent informal discovery from taking place. I mean, instead of the lawyer who's the partner on the case, checking the premises to see if there are any defects or try to uncover evidence in the garden during a game. Who's going to do that, by the way? You can send in a proxy. You can send in a private investigator. You can send in a paralegal. You can send in anybody who's not listed on the law firm's website that can be ascertained through facial recognition technology. It's simply a bullying tactic. And not only is it, is it ineffective, but it's opened up a Pandora's box of legal quagmires that he's now about to step into with the New York Attorney General conducting an investigation, the State Liquor Authority 
threatening to pull Madison Square Garden's liquor license. And in turn, James Dolan has upped the ante and said he's going to turn off the spigot and not sell beer during an upcoming Rangers game. Now you have the New York legislature about to pass or introduce legislation prohibiting the use of facial recognition technology in those kinds of non-law enforcement circumstances. So all this does is shine a very bright light on the ineptitude, pettiness, and sort of the evil disposition of someone like James Dolan to accomplish an end which is very insignificant, yet now he's made these embarrassing appearances on telecasts, on on shows, on WFAN. I don't know what his endgame is. And, you know, more recently, he's hired Hope Hicks from Donald Trump's inner circle to do damage control for uh, Dolan in a city like New York, which has nothing but animosity towards Donald Trump. So, again, I can't figure out what James Dolan's endgame is, but he makes it awfully difficult to be a Rangers fan and a Knicks fan. I know we can compartmentalize. And when I'm watching the playoffs and I'm watching the Rangers go on this great run during the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs, I'm not thinking about James Dolan, but he does make me question it sometimes. Yeah, and there's a bit of a karma there where there have certainly been terrible owners who whose teams have still won championships. It can happen. And yet, in this case, as long as he is heavily involved with these, these two teams, it does sort of feel like they're never going to win as long as he has this kind of control. Well, you know, once upon a time, the Yankees had a very unpopular owner named George Steinbrenner at a point during the 1970s, and he was a bit of a bully. But in baseball, he could... He was not subjected to the restraints or restrictions of a salary cap. He could go out and sign Reggie Jackson, Tommy John, and and Goose trade for good. Yeah, I think he signed Goose Gossage. He could put together a super team, all stars at every position, because he could outspend the other major league baseball teams. And no matter how arrogant he was, he cared about winning so much that you know through financial might and having Gabe Paul put together the the great young Yankee teams surrounded with, with, with Thurman Munson and trading you know strategically. Brilliant trades of Chris Chambliss, Greg Greg Nettles. There was a time in which an owner like Steinbrenner, despite his many faults as a human being, could still bring in championships. But James Dolan actually has to be smarter than the other owners because they're all playing on a level playing field governed by the same salary cap. And there's no New York advantage and there's no spending advantage enjoyed by, enjoyed by the Knicks or the Rangers. And I think Dolan's personal traits, his short-sightedness, his interference and in meddling in the organizations has really been a, a major factor. A key factor. point, too, is that Yankee fans love the George Steinbrenner and they still do. Felonies be damned. Because, as you say, he was passionate about winning and was willing to spend money and do whatever it takes to win. And that's all the fans really care about. They're not worried about if he's paying his taxes or uh, campaign contributions or all the nonsense or even, frankly, this technology stuff we talk about. If the Knicks and Rangers were winning more, uh, they wouldn't even care about that. All right. Well, let's move on. Let's stay in the New York state of mind. I know Zachary's itching to you know, jump into the conversation. Uh, There's a lot going on in the New York gaming industry. New York City is now poised to become home to as many as three casinos. The largest city in the United States has zero casinos, and it might go from zero to three by the end of this year. But it's been preceded by New York's record-setting online sports betting framework. And a year ago, mobile sports betting began in New York, I believe it was in December 21 or January 22, and it's exceeded expectations, generated over... 
close to eight, nine hundred million dollars annually in state tax collections. But the big bugaboo, John and Zachary, is the 51 percent tax rate for operators. After PASPA was overturned in the first group of states that became legal, the gaming industry was very successful in convincing lawmakers that you want to tax us, you want to tax our revenues under 15 percent in order to allow us to effectively compete with the offshore market. If you tax us anything north of 15% or 20%, then you're going to create issues and problems in being able to compete with offshore websites. And along comes Andrew Cuomo in 2021 that thinks it's a good idea to come up with a competitive bidding framework in which operators put forward their best shot and offer a tax rate north of 50%. And I think it landed at either 50 or 51%. Now the operators have been complaining about that. It is made successfully operating in New York very difficult, not too profitable because you've got to kick up half your revenue to, to the state. You got to pay federal excise taxes, one quarter of 1% of your, of your, of your handle. Then there's marketing costs and overhead. So now the New York state Senate has convened a public hearing to examine the issue of how mobile sports betting has performed in the first year of its of its existence. And the Senate has given an opportunity for the different operators to testify before the New York State Senate and make their case as to why the tax rate should be lowered to a more reasonable amount, say 35%, 30 or 25%. So Zachary, John, what do you make of that situation? And how do you see it ending up in terms of a finality, now that the state has enjoyed a record year, blowing away every other state in the country in terms of performance, are they going to give the money back and come up with a different framework? Look, I think that they'll definitely have to consider lowering it to some extent. To what that extent is, I'm not sure. But to sustain this growth long term, I, I think you pretty much have to. New York made, I think it was $909 million in tax revenue in the past year. The tax rate is 51% and then the effective rate is closer to 71% because they're also taxed on promotional spending. So it's a huge amount of their revenues going to the state, which is great if you're the state, but for those operators, they're not making a profit. Even the two biggest DraftKings and FanDuel in New York last year didn't make a profit and you're not going to find them staying unless they're able to make some money themselves. And so I think you have to lower that tax rate, which not really affect in the long term the state tax revenue that New York is going to get. It might take a slight hit at first, but once that continues to grow and ramp up, you're going to be making arguably more money than you are now just because you have that bigger investment and more 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 people betting. Yeah, I can tell you that the most important important person to listen to in, in these terms is a man named Jeff Goral. Now, why is that? As it happens, he owns one of the upstate New York state casinos, way, way up hundreds of miles from New York City, practically. And also he owns the Meadowlands Racetrack, which has the FanDuel Sportsbook, which is in some respects the biggest sportsbook in the country. And he owns, well, not quite half of uh, New York City real estate, but uh, a good chunk of it with his company. I think billionaire is probably not a stretch. And so he knows all this stuff and he also doesn't care what anyone else thinks. So as it happened 18 months ago, I'm in a, uh, at a gaming conference, gaming industry conference event in Saratoga Springs. And he says, this is all a bait and switch. The tax rate is a joke. The fact is that within two years, he said two years, he was a little uh, conservative there. All of these operators would come to the lawmakers and say, we can't survive with this tax rate. You got to change it. Well, guess what? Here we are this week. 
same thing happened. So this was guaranteed to happen. The tax rate is absurd. No one can make money on this. I think the biggest operators are hoping to get the smaller fry to collapse and run away. And then they'll have less competition at least. But still, the tax rate has to be addressed. And you're right about, and this is interesting in the broader economic terms, right? The higher the tax rate on the surface, the more money you get, but then what does the industry do to react? And you're going to see it here. And then there's a point where you lower the tax rate so low that you're not making any money and the companies are making all the money. So you got to have a balance and 50 to 51%, even 71%, as you referenced, is absurd. So something has to be done. It was always guaranteed to come to this. And, you know, New Jersey would love to see these companies start offering horrendous odds rates, uh, which they're threatening to, DraftKings in particular, because then you might as well go across the Hudson River to get the, the real odds in New Jersey. But something has to give. I understand the lawmakers saying, hey, you agreed to this, so why should we back down? But ultimately, you're going to see awful odds, no more marketing, you know, a terrible product for New York betters and an incentive to either go back to or try out the illegal markets, which are still thriving in spite of all this legal sports betting. Yeah, but John, that hasn't exactly happened yet. You know, the first year, if you're looking at it from the perspective of a New York Assemblyman or a New York Senate member, they're looking at those tax dollars. And the first year has been a runaway success from their perspective, $693 million into the state's coffers. To give you some perspective as to how crazy that number is. Before 2022, the highest in calendar year 2021, the state which generated the most operator tax revenue for the state from sports betting was New Jersey at $50 million. So New York's performance, almost 14 times better than that. And I don't know, can you make a case other than than, than pleading for why New York, the New York Senate and the governor should give back some of that money when there's obviously not enough money going around in the state treasury and the state budget to take care of all these items, such as the New York New York City subways, Belmont track, the Belmont Park infrastructure improvements. There's not a lot of money going around and to take a guarantee of 693 million, which is probably going to grow. You know, if that's year one, year two, year three, year four, it might even be better than that. So what what can what empirical evidence? Can DraftKings, FanDuel, and the other online sports betting operators put forward to make a convincing case as to why more operators at a lower tax rate would be more beneficial in the short run and the long term than the status quo? Well, one great example of some empirical evidence is one of the assembly members, Carrie Warner, I believe is how you pronounce her name, said that reducing that tax rate from 51% to 35%, which is what they were asking for, which is still on the higher end of tax rates across the country, would only require only require an additional $600 million in gaming revenue to offset that difference. If you are decreasing that tax rate, you're going to incentivize those companies to spend more money. You're going to get more users and be able to reach more people, which more bets being placed in the same games. And so you're likely going to easily get that even even with that second year, I mean, it's it's just the first year. You're still going to be experiencing growth, as you as you mentioned. But by reducing that tax rate, they can kind of show that, look, with all that extra money, we would be also investing more money marketing-wise. We'd be getting more people. That six hundred million is going to be nothing, chump change to what we can what we can bring in 
if you were to change this within a year, within two years, and we're already then at a revenue point higher than we are now? Well, I think the compromise there ideally is because right, the lawmakers say, yeah, you know, I don't believe it. You're you're just going to pay less taxes and you're not going to do anything is to say, well, why don't you give us some sort of a guarantee that if we do reduce the tax rate, then you you say, you know, what's going to happen. So great. So guarantee us a certain amount that we can't either we can't lose or we can't lose much. I mean, this is how fixed odds horse race betting is now live at Monmouth Park in New Jersey, because the horsemen were, in, were fearful. Wait, we've got a paramutual industry. Might it collapse if you have a different form of odds for gamblers? We don't want to take the risk. We're never going to do it. And so the deal that an Australian company, Betmakers, did was to say, we're going to guarantee you can't lose. So if you're convinced that we're going to cannibalize your profits uh, or revenues, then the fact is we're going to make that up no matter what. So you're going to try this. You're going to see that's going to work. You're going to make what you made, and we're going to make extra money. Everybody wins, and you take no risk. Now, I don't know if the operators in New York State will go that far and say to lawmakers, you're taking no risk, but they certainly have to, I think, give some kind of a good faith effort to say, reduce the tax rate, it's going to get better, and we're not just going to keep all the money, we guarantee something. I think that would be a good compromise. And I think the the operators are now starting to admit what everybody knew all along, which what Jeff Corral referred to is this tax rate is nonsense. There's no way long term this ever can survive. We just went in because New York's too big to fail. We have to go in there. We're not a credible company if we're not licensed in New York. Other mm-hmm. states sort of look down on us. So you're not even in New York. So how big are you? You're not a big deal. So everybody uh, played the game. So let's take the masks off. Let's drop the curtain. Let's admit this tax rate was nonsense, that the money that you're getting, which is unbelievable now, is great. It's not going to be sustainable. And it's so true that we're going to promise you that when you reduce the tax rate, we're going to give you a floor that you're, we're not just going to keep all the revenue. I don't know if that's going to work, but I think that's what should happen. Or you could sunset the tax reduction and, and have it sort of reevaluated after you know two years, three years, and this new law would sunset in you know 2026. And you go back to the drawing board or figure something out that allows the state legislature to revisit it. And in the interim, you, you could also give some relief and draw some draw compromises in other respects. But uh, I think it's going to be a tough road to hoe for the operators to convince the New York legislature to change the existing system after only one year. I think if I think if things start to go a little sideways and companies reduce their spend and, and revenues start to flatten out or you know maybe reduce, I think that that might be now look at what's happening. We can actually point to a diminution to operator revenues and, and state tax collections and say there's a problem here and we need to sort of tweak the existing system. But to come back after the first year when things have been so successful, I'd like to see it happen. I think a case can be made. But some of the comments that I heard from, you know, Senator Adabo and some of the other lawmakers on that panel were not exactly very welcoming. So they basically put the onus on DraftKings and FanDuel who are, te- who are testifying and they, they've said the burden of proof is shifted to you. Show us, show us, and then we could talk about it. So I think this is the beginning of what is going to be a running dialogue over the course of the next few months. And the legislative session in New York doesn't end until June. Not everything has to be decided in early February. There are a couple more months in which this discussion can play out, along with the discussion for iGaming, which is the other big major gaming-related initiative that the legislature has to decide during the 2023 legislative session. Gaming policy in New York has been incremental 
over the course of the last five, six years. It went from casino authorization, retail sports betting, daily fantasy sports, online sports betting, then the acceleration of the date for New York downstate casinos. And I think that's left the runway clear for iGaming during the 2023 legislative session. John, do you see iGaming being uh, probable in the New York legislature this session? Do you think they're going to pass iGaming? And what will that mean to the gaming landscape in New York relative to its competition with its next door neighbor in New Jersey? Yeah, I'm going back so long on this. It's hard to believe now, but uh, this is going to be the 10th year of New Jersey having online casino gaming and Delaware also, by the way, although that's run by the state lottery. It's a small state, so it's kind of overlooked. But one of the things that has confounded the legal gambling expansion industry in the U.S. has been how eager states and how quickly states have legalized sports betting in only since 2018, when the PASPA law was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, and yet how slow they are to embrace online casino. It's something like 35 or 37, whatever states have sports betting, and six have online casino gaming. And there's so much more money, like tax revenue in, in New Jersey is something like 50% higher from online casino than it is for sports betting, and yet sports betting gets all the headlines. Okay, John, it, it leads to the obvious question, because I get asked this all the time by the Wall Street people and, and, and just sort of finance people. Why why is it why are states so slow to legalize iGaming when there are already 40 some odd states that have casinos to begin with? 35 plus states have legalized sports betting. Most have online sports betting. And yet iGaming is in a single digit number of states. Which is which is just sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Why does it take so long for iGaming to achieve the same kind of, I guess, acceptance at the state legislative level? What's the hang-up? Yeah, I think you know it's interesting. There aren't many focus groups that, that are older than I am, but state lawmakers tend to be. They're overwhelmingly male compared to the population, overwhelmingly over 60 compared to the population. And so I think people, a lot of the men in that group, they grew up with sports. They might have, like, there was a, one of the, there was a bookie in my neighborhood. My dad was a fireman. Another guy worked for the Museum of Natural History. Another dad, you know, worked for IBM. And one dad was a bookie. It was no big deal back in the 70s, right? And so a lot of the lawmakers grew up in that era. So they're familiar with sports. They're familiar with sports betting, maybe the corner bar. There was a guy, you know, behind the table, whatever. So they, they, they get that. And now there's a mobile version of it, but they still understand it. But online casino is so far to them. First of all, they didn't grow up with legal casinos around then. And also the main fact is here that they think, well, this is too risky to let people risk their mortgage, you know, on a Friday night after a couple of beers on online casino game, not realizing that the illegal market, just like with sports betting, is so extensive that a significant percentage of your residents already bet illegally in online casino games. And they're going to continue to do it until you legalize it. And that's what lawmakers don't understand. They think if we don't legalize this, it won't happen. And it already does happen. It's unfortunate. And those bad things do happen. And there's got to be a lot more money toward responsible gambling and all that. There isn't enough in almost every state. But that's the one key that the legislators do not understand. It's already happening. Well, I don't think there's a lot of knowledge or education about that, because when the battles in the state legislature over sports betting were occurring, the offshore market was held up as the big boogeyman, right? If you don't legalize sports betting, you know, all this back channel activity, all this illegal market activity will occur. And the main argument was this activity is occurring anyway. It's taking place illegally in offshore markets. So all we're doing 
is asking you to regulate, legalize it, to channel the behavior away from illegal markets into legal and regulated markets. I haven't heard the same you know, sort of arguments put forth about iGaming. Is the offshore iGaming market prominent and as easily accessible in a state like New Jersey or New York as it is with respect to offshore sports books? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it basically is. I mean, that, that's the whole issue of gambling. This goes back to prohibition, right? A hundred years ago now, most in the United States. There are certain people who have certain compulsions and they're going to find a way to deal with it. Marijuana now, it's talked about whether it's legalized or not. They're going to access the product that they desire, legally or illegally. So yes, I do think that, again, the lawmakers understand that people were betting illegally. They may have done it themselves when they were younger. Or again, they know the corner bar has a bookie still. So when you said, oh, well, you know, it's already happening. They already knew that. They don't know anything about people playing online slots in their living rooms. That's foreign to them. They probably have neighbors and, and relatives who do it all the time. It's just not talked about. I, I definitely agree with all those points. I mean, it's something that goes on and that they just don't realize. And they think that it doesn't exist. Like, it's not even that they don't think it goes on. They just think it doesn't exist or there's no demand. So they're like, well, why would we Why would we do that? We have these, you know, we don't like betting. I'm in North Carolina, which doesn't even have legal sports betting. And so they're hostile to anything, but it, it's going on. And those, you know, black market or offshore iGaming sites are making a bunch of money. And I think it needs to be presented to those state legislatures in a way that's like, look, this is going on in your in your state, in your locality, they're making and taking all this money. Why not make it legal so you can one, regulate it and two, make tax revenue for your state. So that way, you know, able to benefit, able to to reinvest that money in other things, other places. So it is it is kind of vexing how it is treated so differently than sports betting and just needs to be, I think, addressed in a way that those legislatures will kind of understand, which, as as you guys mentioned, hasn't really occurred yet. And I'll just wrap up, Dan. Your original question was, is New York going to do it this year? I, I think that they won't get to it this year. I think that Senator Adaba will make some progress, and I think it'll be a little bit more front of mind to legislators. But I don't think they quite have enough time with all the other things they have going on in the state this year. I can see 2024, 2025. New York will legalize. And when they do, uh, I can't say it's going to be a tidal wave because Pennsylvania and Michigan followed New Jersey, a number of years later, they make a fortune in taxes on online casino and yet nothing practically. So I, I don't know that New York is the the final domino because I thought Pennsylvania, Michigan would be. But I think New York will do it. And then there'll be a slow, slow trickle of other states finally getting onto this. Yeah, I mean, with with iGaming being the sort of the golden goose or holy grail of gambling revenues for states, why do we care so much about land-based casinos and, and in particular why is the downstate New York City or downstate New York casino licensing process so fascinating to so many of us? I mean, New York City is the largest city in the United States. It doesn't have any casinos. And as a result of a 2013 constitutional amendment that for the first time allowed casinos in, in the state of New York with a focus initially on four upstate casinos, we're now finally nearly 10 years after the original ballot measure getting to the process of choosing who the three dance partners are going to be in downstate New York, whether they're going to be in Queens, Manhattan, Long Island, Westchester County. Why is that so important? 
Well, I mean, it's 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 the big it's the big apple. It's the biggest one, right? Right. I mean, uh, Philadelphia has a number of casinos now. Chicago is working on adding one, but a lot of major cities in the U.S. don't have casinos, and some of them don't even have one. You know, within a convenient number of driving miles. So. This is the biggest one, but really the three license thing is a little bit misleading. The fact is that Aqueduct in Queens racetrack and also I mean also Yonkers Raceway in Westchester County, they already have what they call race they're race casinos. So they have thousands of video lottery terminals, which are basically slot machines, and they make a fortune for the state. And so they already have gambling on the sites. They have not only horse racing, but they have slot machine casino style games, right? And so it's already there. They have plenty of real estate. So for them to get to the three licenses is a very simple matter. There's no local uh, opposition. You know, that's one of the keys that has driven gambling expansion in the U.S. has been racetracks because people always oppose gambling in their state, except they've already had a racetrack there and the, the world didn't fall apart. So then, OK, I guess you can put slot machines in there. It's already gambling anyway. We don't care. It's not residential so much. And so that's that's been the easy path. And so I think those two. Clearly, you're going to get the two of the three licenses. It doesn't hurt that Senator Dabo, his district is basically at Aqueduct and Assemblyman Pretlow, as it happens, is of Yonkers. So the two leading forces for gambling expansion in New York State, I should say, clearly have parochial interests, but also it makes the most sense. It would take them a couple of months total to just retrofit a room to add other table games and such to the video version they already have. So it's really one license, I think. And that's where the intrigue comes in, because you would figure it's got to be in New York City proper. And not the Queens isn't, but thinking of Manhattan and Brooklyn, and that's where it gets complicated. First of all, I want to push back a little bit on the sort of favored son status for Empire City Casino in Yonkers and Resorts World New York City at the Aqueduct site. Senator Dabo and Assemblyperson Pretlow don't get to choose. They're not on the New York City Gaming Facility Location Board. They're not on the New York State Gaming Commission. They pass the law. I think they sit as one of six members on the Community Advisory Committee, which acts as the initial gatekeeper. And in order to be considered by the Facility Location Board, you have to convince two-thirds of the members of the Community Advisory Committee that there isn't any community opposition, that it satisfies zoning and land use regulations. And the way I think about it is the state of New York is making a lot of money from Resorts World and Yonkers through these VLT revenues. If you transform them and give them casino licensing privileges, you're going to lose two VLT facilities. So is it more economically beneficial for the state in the short run and the long run to have three other sites serving as destination casinos and keep Resorts World and, and Empire City as VLTs? And essentially you would have five slot parlors in the greater New York City metropolitan area instead of just three. Is there an argument to be made that it might actually be detrimental, name of our podcast, might actually be detrimental to the state's financial fortunes to lose those VLT facilities and have them convert into full casinos? I think that the key two words you mentioned are community opposition or community support. That's the key. Those two locations have absolute community support. A lot of people in that region, they have full-time jobs there or their friends do or their neighbors do, relatives, everybody they know. So that is crucial uh, to the issue. I think everywhere else, including anywhere in Manhattan, there's going to be significant, not only political, but also grassroots community opposition. So I don't know if any site other than those two is a lock 
to have enough community support, which is a key element in the approval from the gaming regulators. So that's why I think they're the favorite. Maybe not so much they're a favored son in the legislature, but also that they have that support. And Manhattan in particular, I, I don't know where you can go where local mm-hmm. residents are going to say, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's add a casino. There's not much going on in my little burb here in Manhattan or even a booming Brooklyn. Right. I mean, we've gone down that path before. I mean, I re- remember back in the early 2000s, the New York Jets wanted to have a stadium on the West Side and community opposition fueled by James Dolan, dark money, <laughs> essentially jettisoned that. So they've gone, they've traveled down that road before and Manhattan presents a unique problem, not unique in the sense that traffic is impactful everywhere. But can you imagine trying to get in and out of the city? Through the Midtown Tunnel, over the 59th Street Bridge, if you have a casino, a full-fledged casino near the United Nations Plaza or Times Square, I know it's not going to be a footprint quite like the Venetian, but it's going to create a, a traffic nightmare wherever it's going to be. And I think this issue of community opposition is going to be sort of a persistent theme at every site or every proposed site other than you know resorts in Empire City and Long Island. I mean, I'm fascinated by Las Vegas Sands choosing the old Nassau Coliseum site. There's still a Nassau Coliseum there, but it's no longer the home to a National Hockey League team, but it occupies a huge footprint that would be so perfect for a Vegas-style resort casino and Las Vegas Sands entered into an agreement to take over 80 acres. Yet there's opposition from Hofstra University. There have been some efforts or lawsuits in the past to keep VLTs out of Westbury, you know, at the at a site near the old Roosevelt Raceway. I think community opposition is going to be a major hurdle everywhere. Even Steve Cohen with Willits Point has the issue of there was a New York Court of Appeals decision for the use of the parklands next to City Field and how that can't be utilized without state legislative approval. So there's going to be community and zoning obstacles almost everywhere except for what you consider to be the two shoe-in sites. And maybe for that reason, New York goes with the two automatics and then it becomes a beauty contest among the other eight or so bidders who haven't who haven't put forward their bids yet. The bids aren't due probably for another few months. We're going to cover this topic ad nauseum on not only Conduct Detrimental, but we probably will have our own separate, I, I don't mean to tease it yet, but we will have a gambling industry-focused podcast coming soon. And we will be the home to the New York City downstate casino licensing process. Make no mistake about it. You will be subjected to all the battlegrounds over where a third casino should be situated. So at this early stage, without seeing the bids or knowing who the dance partners are and the, who the developers are partnering with, where do you see, the, light, the, the at least in your mind, the most sensible location for a third downstate casino, if we're assuming Yonkers Raceway and Aqueduct Park. Well, I mean, if you look at the city field area in Queens suggestion, that's a Steve Cohen, New York Mets owner concept. And look at what he has done with baseball and it's and it's opposed to puny salary cap as he would look at it. And remember, the bidding for any of these licenses, including whether it's Yonkers and Aqueduct are going to be in on it, it's five hundred million dollar minimum to let the license. If you're gonna if Steve Cohen says, Hey, I'll give you three billion, regulators are gonna say, Whoa, whoa. And then suddenly some of the local opposition, which is already there, they may their voices may not get quite as loud, kind of drowned out by the three billion dollars. And that sounds absurd, but the that's almost signed Carlos Correa for like, you know, double the cost. They didn't care about that. So that's why I think that that one has a real chance just because I, th- I think 
Cohen really benefits from the it's not 500 million. Everybody puts up 500 million to be in the game and then we choose the best one. It's like, hey, you can bid as much as you want for a license. And I can't believe Cohen's going to say, well, 510, I guess I'll be a little ahead of the other guy. That's not how he plays the game. Yeah, but all these bidders have real money. I mean, we're talking about, you know, SL Green, Ballet. Everybody understands that you've got to be in it to win it, but you have to also be a serious bidder and just betting at the minimum level you're going to be discarded. So I think whether it's Las Vegas stands or Steve Cohen or SL Green, maybe some of the fringe bidders like solo real estate developers, the Mohegans are partnering with a real estate developer for a United Nations centered casino project. They're not going to come in at $500 million. They know they've got to go toe to toe with the big boys. So I think no matter who the gaming companies are, you're talking about some of the most well-heeled gaming operators in the country squaring off over a coveted one loan license. And once that license is awarded, they're not going to be any more. The New York state constitution allows a maximum of seven. And once these three are awarded, that's going to be it for a long, long time in New York state. Speaking of which... Why haven't we heard of Belmont Park being in the bidding for a potential dark horse? Although I haven't heard anything to suggest that Belmont Park is conceived to be a site for a, a potential third casino. Not after they're getting a half a million dollars out of the New York budget that was, I think, announced today. They're going to be getting to fund capital improvements and infrastructure improvements. It's fascinating to me. You know, I, I, I don't have a dog in the fight. But I wouldn't undersell Las Vegas Sands. They've owned the Venetian, the Palazzo in Las Vegas. They're just legit when it comes to casino operations. And one of the three members of the New York State Gaming Location Facility Board is Stuart Rabinowitz, the former dean of Hofstra Law School, the former president of Hofstra University, who's now of counsel for a law firm in Nassau County, Long Island. And I'd have to think, Professor Rabinowitz taught me. So I don't know him and how he's going to rule on this, but I think it's not such a terrible thing that the most impactful decision maker on the New York State Gaming Facility Location Board is a Long Island-based academic who probably would love to see a transformative, iconic legacy project like this exist in Nassau County. And it would also create the desired separation you have a Queens facility, a Westchester facility, and a Long Island facility. So you almost have a diamond where they're not packed too close together. Anyway, we're only at the beginning of the process, and we're going to follow this story on Conduct Detrimental and any other related podcasts that we cover and talk about game gambling issues on. Interesting thing happened today. Before we go, we're in the midst of a, the beginning of a legislative session in a multitude of different states, and 11 Georgia lawmakers introduced a bill today that is very unique in that we're beginning to see a shift away from the, the, the racing industry, the casino industry, and the online sports betting operators controlling the process to now having the sports team and the professional sports industry become involved in the licensing process. I mean, John, back back in the Halcyon days of, of PASPA and, and the post-PASPA era, we were focusing on casinos and racetracks and maybe their online sports betting partners. But the name of the game in 2021 and 2022 is for professional sports stadiums and arenas and the teams to have control over the licensing process. We saw that in Arizona last year, 10 out of the 20 Online sports betting licenses were given to the pro sports teams of that state in Maryland and Ohio. Similarly, the teams were at the front of the line when it came to the allotment of sports betting licenses. So the Georgia bill a year ago was just going to be online sports betting 
not really necessarily under the control of any particular stakeholder group. Basically, a finite number of online sports betting licenses. The bill today guarantees a minimum of nine and a maximum of 18 online sports betting licenses, nine of which would go to professional sports venues and or NASCAR or the PGA Tour. John, are we beginning to see a changing of the guard or at least a a changing of the strategy for how the professional sports industry stakeholders approach sports betting legalization and state capitals? Yeah, I'm getting a kick out of this. As as you remember, Daniel, uh, it's only a decade ago, literally 2013, or maybe it's 2014, I guess. But the NFL and the other sports leagues convinced the federal judge not only that legalization of sports betting would cause irreparable harm, which was a legal standard then, mm-hmm. but that if Monmouth Park, a Jersey Shore thoroughbred racing track, had legal gambling like Las Vegas and all of Nevada have had for 70 or 80 years or whatever, that if, if Monmouth Park had legal sports betting, for as long as four weeks in 2014, that would cause irreparable harm to the reputation of these leagues. And that passed. And I was thinking, I didn't go to law school, but I'm not really seeing irreparable harm there. And anyway, here we are. So now it is sort of ironic. But I think one of the keys for me with Georgia is I consider that state to be the capital of the South. And the South obviously has been slow to legalize sports betting overall. Mississippi has always been an outlier going back to Riverboat Casinos decades ago. But for the most part, those states are also skittish. Tennessee's been much more uh, aggressive on this front than I would have expected. But I think that as Georgia goes, Florida is its own entity. It's not even in the South, if you ask me. But uh, but the rest of the South, I think, is really going to be closely following Georgia. And I think that if and when Georgia moves forward, I think that's a good template for an entire region, practically. It is a little bit weird. The Florida situation is really a a constitutional tribal compact issue. I I don't think it serves as a bellwether for any other state in the southern region. And Atlanta, Georgia is very interesting because you hit upon a very important point in this in, in the sort of the Bible Belt or the southern states. Online sports betting and sports betting in general have been very slow go. I mean, Alabama hasn't passed a sports betting law. Mississippi doesn't have an online sports betting law. Uh, Georgia hasn't passed any significant gambling legislation in 30 years since the voters approved the state-run lottery in 1993. Efforts are made almost every year to expand gambling, but this might be the year because the teams in Georgia have taken control of the process. There's a sports betting alliance with the sort of the major Atlanta-based professional sports teams lobbying the legislature. And the the out for the legislature has always been, well, if we put this to a voter approval, if we make this a ballot measure, we have our asses covered. There's political, there's, there's no political accountability on our part if we place this on the ballot and let the people decide. The problem with that, John, is that The next opportunity for a ballot measure in in Georgia is 2024. So if they went that route, it would mean that sports betting would not launch until 2025. And I've been on the sort of this crusade to advocate for the legislative authorization of sports betting. Why do it in 2025? You can do it today because the state constitution of Georgia does not prohibit sports betting as a form of gambling that's banned under the state constitution. It only bars casino gambling, paramutual betting on horse races, and private lotteries. And it allows the state lottery to exist. So my argument has always been, why do it the hard way when you can do it the easy way when the hard way is going to take two more years to accomplish? And before you even get to a vote of the electorate, you have to clear the Georgia Assembly 
by a two-thirds vote just to place a sports betting measure on the statewide ballot, whereas if you just want to approve it as a statutory measure, you only need a majority. And I would just think it's the path of least resistance. And the fear has always been, well, if we go down this route, if we if we do it the easy way, somebody's going to file a lawsuit and argue that the state constitution of Georgia precludes the legislature from approving sports betting by statute. And then that's just going to kick the can down the road until 2026, 2027. And I think that's going to be a big debate over the course of the next couple of weeks. And on the on the constitutionally permissible side is my testimony, as well as a, a former Georgia Supreme Court justice who's prepared a legal memorandum explaining why the Georgia Constitution does not impede the legislature from passing a sports betting law. And the problem in past years, John, is that the, the, the Georgia General Assembly wants to do everything in one fell swoop. They want to put sports betting, casino gambling, and paramutual betting on horse racing on the same constitutional measure and have it decided by the electorate Electorate and the weight of all three measures crashes the whole thing down. And I believe a standalone measure for sports betting outside of the ballot process might be the most expedient way to legalize sports wagering in the state of Georgia. Otherwise, you're going to you're going to create all these sideshows and arguments and opposition coming from anti-gambling groups that don't want to see the proliferation of casinos throughout Georgia. I think online sports betting as a standalone measure stands a much better chance of getting through the legislature than placing casinos, horse racing on, and sports betting on the same question and placing that before the electorate. I don't think it ever gets to the electorate on a two-thirds vote if that's the path that they take. So I think the key for this legislative session is whether there's enough support to get this through the legislature and not worry about a lawsuit over the constitutional issue. The constitutional issue is going to be the number one discussion between now and whenever this bill is signed into law. I've been kind of following along with those articles you've written talking about Georgia constitutional issues. And the more that you look at it and the more that you read, it doesn't look like it's a constitutional challenge that would really stand up. And I think the more that that's kind of talked about, the less likely that it's going to really get any traction, especially if it is a standalone online sports betting bill, like you were like we were just saying. I definitely think that they've been putting too much pressure by trying to put everything and pile all of those different types together. But I don't see the constitutional issue being a huge deal going forward. I mean, it's definitely still possible, but I would I would love to see it. The really cool thing about Georgia before we wrap up is I think it's a very underrated market for, for online sports betting. It's the eighth most populous state in the United States, but it's also the home to the nation's most heavily traveled airport. And it's going to sort of transform the experience of having to connect through Atlanta. And now you'll have the opportunity while you're waiting an hour, an hour and a half, or however long your layover is to make online sports bets while you're temporarily in the state of Georgia. So I think the potential for Georgia as sort of a an underrated online sports betting behemoth exists by virtue of the fact that it's the busiest airport in the United States. So that's an issue that we're going to track a little bit more closely in Conduct Detrimental, but the beginning of the process is now upon us. They've introduced a bill, and now over the course of whatever remains in the session, they're going to debate the constitutional issue. And I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic that this bill will be signed into law and Georgia will be one of the next states to legalize sports betting. So that will do it. We covered the gauntlet today. We did mobile sports betting in New York, New York downstate casinos. We did James Dolan. We covered sort of a smorgasbord of sports law and sports gambling issues. 
Zachary, any any final thoughts before we uh, call it an episode? Just thinking about your point of how much more I would look forward to going to uh, have a connecting flight through Atlanta if I could sit there and place mobile sporting bets, even if it's just for an hour or two. Believe me, there, there isn't anyone who travels throughout the United States that, that, that hasn't gone through Atlanta on connecting flights. It is sort of the, one of the most popular connecting you know, airports for any of us who have to travel from one side of the country to another part of the country. So I think the economic potential for Georgia is vastly underrated and and understated so i'm excited about this possibility and it really tees up what will be one of the more fascinating legal issues in the world of legal sports betting i mean i love the lawsuits so anyone who wants to challenge the georgia sports betting law on constitutional grounds i'm ready for it we'll talk about it but that's that's clearly the debate that is going to shape you know sort of the next couple of weeks of the legislative discussion around sports betting legalization in georgia so that will wrap up this week's episode of Conduct Detrimental, on behalf of John Brennan and Zachary Bryson, I'm Daniel Wallach. Join us next week for our next episode of Conduct Detrimental. Thanks for joining us today, everybody. Mm-hmm.